Hello, I'm Mark Gerson, and I'm the rabbi's husband. And on this show, I hope to demonstrate just how accessible, exhilarating, and simply helpful the Torah is to everybody in our daily lives, whoever we are, whatever we do. In my capacity as a rabbi's husband, I sometimes get asked for romantic advice based on Judaism. I go through two Torah passages, both from Genesis, and then I give the most practical advice, marry a rabbi. I am grateful every day, both to be married to a rabbi and to be married to the specific rabbi, and that's Erica. Being married to a rabbi means that the home is a place where the Torah is studied, discussed, and hopefully lived on a daily basis. And it is my joy as the rabbi's husband to bring that gift to you. This week, I am delighted to be joined by Rabbi Sharon Browse from ECAR in Los Angeles. Rabbi Browse is one of the great entrepreneurs in the Jewish religious world, and I am so delighted that she is here with us today to discuss the awesome passage of Exodus 29 through 10. I am delighted to have on the rabbi's husband today, a renowned rabbi who can also, in the spirit of Panim, be designated as one of the great social entrepreneurs in the Jewish world. Rabbi Sharon Braus graduated from the JTS Rabbinical School 20 years ago and has since founded one of the most vibrant and influential Jewish communities in the world, ECAR, based in Los Angeles. She has been ranked as the number one most influential rabbi in the United States by Newsweek, and there have been so many manifestations of that, from her thriving congregation, to her blessings of the president and the vice president, to her many contributions in public conversations and writings. Sharon, welcome to The Rabbi's Husband. Thank you, Mark. I'm so happy to be with you. Thank you for having me. This is just a great moment for me because we last saw each other 30 and a half years ago because I graduated from Melbourne High School in 1990 and you were 91. Wow, we've come a long way, right? That's right. So from Milburn High School, class of 1991, how did you decide to become a rabbi? In my first year of college, which and part of the reason that I chose the school I did was because I knew that there was a pretty sizable Jewish community there and I felt like I'd find a home. But I was fairly disconnected religiously, just in terms huh. of identity. I had a sense of Jewishness. But every Jewish environment that I walked into I was repelled by most of the time because I didn't know the basic rules. There seemed like there was this code of Jewish conduct that I was simply not privy to, which was confusing for me because I knew I wasn't a religious Jew, but I had spent my whole life identifying as a Jew and being involved in Jifty, the Jew, you know, Jewish youth movement, and of course our synagogue. So I was pretty stunned. I actually had one moment that I think of, in at least the way that I remember my own narrative as the turning point, which was a particularly humiliating Shabbat dinner experience sometime in first year, but I was invited to Shabbat dinner in the dorm and I asked what I could bring and I was asked to bring salad dressing. And I remember walking into this dorm room and putting the salad dressing down on the countertop and my friend just freaking out and screaming. And she took a dish towel and wrapped her hand around the dish towel and threw the salad dressing into the hallway and said, you totally trafed up my kitchen. And I said, what are you talking about? What does that mean? And she said, it's not hechshered. And I said, what does that mean? Because salad dressing, it's not kosher. Now my kitchen's not kosher. And I was so embarrassed and I just left. I left the Jews 
You know, I'm like, forget it. <laughs> I'll be a cultural wow. Jew. I'm not a religious person. I don't need to go to Shabbat. I don't need to go to dinners. And kind of went on to just be like a Jew living in New York City. I went on to go just explore New York City. And I studied African-American history and culture and Eastern religion and kind of became myself in some ways, except the Jewish piece was this big unanswered question for me. And it happened in my sophomore year that there was a terrorist attack in Buenos Aires and it just rocked me. I mean, I was devastated by it and I was trying to understand why an attack on this Israeli embassy in Buenos Aires would personally touch me because I wasn't religious and I wasn't connected to the Jewish community. I'd never been to Israel. I had no connection to Jewish life per se. And so I went to this vigil that was held on the steps at Columbia right outside just to be with other people who were also really upset by this. And I realized, oh, because it's my family, because whether I'm religious or not, the Jewish people, somehow there's this family thing. And so I set out on this journey to start to learn. There was this cute boy who lived across the hall named David, who grew up in a great conservative Jewish family. And I asked him, could he help me find a synagogue? And he and I ended up going every single Shabbat, a week after week to find a synagogue that I could start to learn in. We ended up at B'nai Jeshurun and the place just took my breath away. It was a combination of the most powerful, beautiful, soulful music I'd ever heard. And rabbis, it was Rabbi Marshall Meyer and Rabbi Roly Madelon who were preaching about HIV AIDS and about our moral obligation. And they said, if we don't, tens of millions of people will die around the world. I suddenly realized that the spiritual power of the place was wedded to the moral message. And I turned to David and I said, you know, we have to go to Israel now. I have to learn. I have to immerse myself in this, at least so I know enough to be a good Jew who could come to B'nai Jeshurun and like follow along. So we went to Israel the next year and I started learning. I fell in love with Talmud. And that was what led me to apply to rabbinical school <laughs> right after college. I thought a lot about my own journey and what it felt like that every Jewish environment I entered, I felt repelled by. And I realized, oh, like we don't create institutional spaces and communal spaces that are made for people who are coming in from the outside. Whether the outside means they weren't raised as Jews or they don't come from conventional, traditional images of what Jewish family looks like. There's this whole way that we've created a universe that self-perpetuates and is really not made to be radically welcoming. What about Jews of color? What about trans Jews? What about non-binary people? What does it mean to create spaces that see people who come from backgrounds and, and identities that are not a part of what the traditional conventional space is oriented toward. Very interesting. Now, every great entrepreneur sees either a big problem to be solved or a great opportunity to be capitalized upon and then marshal scarce resources to achieve it. And that's exactly what you did. So you've seemingly just identified the big problem. At what point did you say, I've identified the problem and I have the solution and route to one of the great institutions in American Jewish which you started in 2004. Thank you. Thank you for that. What happened was at some point in rabbinical school had it my, in my um, second to last year had a massive crisis of faith. I picked up the paper and there was a story about floods ravaging Mozambique. And the article was about how this country had just come out of more than a decade of civil war 
And there was a picture of women who had climbed to the top of trees while the flood water is just destroying the communities below. And they were waiting for rescue helicopters. There were no rescue helicopters. I thought, these women are going to die because there are no rescue helicopters because of the intersection of poverty, of racism, of violence, of militarism. What is my tradition? I've been in rabbinical school now for five years. How is that helping the world? And I thought, this is just not right for me anymore. I can't be here while these women are dying in real time. So I walked out and I went, I ended up walking to Columbia. There was a center for the study of human rights. I like walked inside and said, I need to speak with the director. It's an international emergency. The director said, happened to be there and is a, actually a former priest named Paul Martin, this brilliant man. And he said, come in, come in. And he said, listen to me. Tell, who are you? I said, I'm a rabbinical student. I'm dropping out. The world's on fire you know, we have to do something about it now. And he said, you know what? You're not dropping out of rabbinical school. The world needs clergy, needs spiritual leaders who give a damn about the women and babies in Mozambique. And you are going to stay in rabbinical school and you're going to marry these commitments, the commitments that you have to a just and dignified and fair and equitable world and your commitment to, to Talmud and Torah and Jewish community. And he forced me to stay in school. I was forced to consider what would it look like for there not to be two different sides of my heart, my Jewish heart, and then my heart that cared about the world, my particular heart and my universal heart. So when we moved out from New York to Los Angeles, David, who took me on that journey years before became my husband, I was looking to find a shul or a community to be where I could serve as a rabbi that would understand this integrated heart. And I realized I actually was going to have to build it. I was going to have to build a space where I could address like both of those essential elements of self. In the meantime, I became more and more interested in not the Jews who show up, but the Jews who don't show up. The Jews who were like me, who couldn't find a home in the Jewish world because they didn't feel welcome, because they didn't feel like they fit, because they weren't inspired. So I have a forthcoming book on how the meaning of life is revealed in the Haggadah. This is the fifth son. The fifth son. He's the one who's not there. Who doesn't even feel welcome to show up. That's in the right. Oh, That's right. It's brilliant. It's brilliant. Everyone always asks, like, who's not in the conversation? And I realized the most interesting people I met were not in the conversation. So all these young, talented, creative, brilliant people were saying why they don't find what they're looking for in these kind of conventional spaces. And I thought, this is also a piece of the puzzle. Somewhere at the intersection of the trend of the world's on fire and my faith tradition better have something to say about it. Otherwise it's a heresy. And this trend of the continuity people will say like Jews are dropping off like flies. Young people aren't coming to synagogue. We, you know, the disaffection rates, the disaffiliation rates somewhere at that intersection is the birth of a new thing in the world. And that thing for me became Ikar. What, what a magnificent story. And, and it reminds me of the Parsha in which your chosen passage is, which is Parsha Yitro. You, so you chose, we'll get into it now, uh, Exodus 29 through 10. And so you said that you learned about how to become a better Jew from a Catholic priest, Father Paul. And Moses learns how to become a better Jew from his Gentile father-in-law. Mm. It's the outsider who's able to yes. look at how the Jews practicing as a Jew and to give us the advice that propels us to heights that allowed you to become you and Moses to become Moses. Going into the Parsha, your chosen passage is Exodus 29 through 10. Sharon, please tell us what happens in Exodus 29 through 10 and 
what it means to you. I was trying to think about, if we think broadly about what are some of the passages that stand at the heart of who we are as people of faith. For me, this is certainly a piece of that. So the Israelite people, after hundreds of years of slavery, oppression, degradation, humiliation, are led on a path toward liberation. And and they, in partnership with God, are released from the oppressive stronghold of the tyrant and are able to start to make that walk. And very soon after that journey begins, they find that freedom is only purposeful when they're given a blueprint that includes shared obligations, commitments, and responsibilities to other human beings. And very quickly after that incredible moment of liberation, they learn we belong to each other and all of the people of the world belong to each other. And from your own oppression, you learn how you are to treat the stranger. You learn what you, that you are never to oppress, that you are never to treat another person in the same way that you were treated. You learn that every single person has dignity. And not only are you not to oppress them, and not only are you not to create multiple categories of law, but you are to love the stranger. Why? Because every human being is created in the image of God. And so you treat God's own image as your own personal, moral, and religious obligation to lift up the dignity of every other person. Now, how do you live in a world of pharaohs when your core foundational theological commitment is that every single person is a child of God? And the answer is, or one of the answers is, sheshet yamim tavod Six days a week, you go out into the world and you work and you live and you engage and you try to transform our world into a just and loving society in which the image of God is made manifest. But on the seventh day, you pause, you breathe, and you remember that dream. You remember the commitment. What is the core foundational commitment? Because as Rev Cook taught, the whole world stands on the dream. And that doesn't mean that we just dream that the world will one day get better. It means that we dream and we dream so hard that when Saturday night comes and we light Havdalah candle and we leave Shabbat, we go back into the world and we work with everything we've got to try to affect the kind of transformation that will be necessary in order for our reality to meet the dream. And that, that dialectic between working, engaging, planting, and pausing, and dreaming, which manifests itself in our Shabbos practice of singing, and napping, and eating, and talking to the people in your house who you never have time to talk to, that is the thing that keeps the Jewish people alive, and that keeps the dream alive. The six days of work are also sacred. Yes. In order to have the Shabbat, the Shabbat makes sense only if it's preceded and followed by six days of work. Yes. Everything's sacred. It's all sacred. When you give everything day after day after day, your soul is sapped and you need the nourishment in order to find the strength to continue the sacred fight. So the work is sacred and the rest is sacred as well. In the introduction of Shabbat in Genesis 2, it says on the seventh day, God rested from the work that he completed, leading one to believe he was doing something. He was creating something on the seventh day. So it must have been purposeful rest because you can't create the absence of something. So if rest was just sleeping, 
you don't need to create it. It just happens. It's the notion, I think it was Rabbi Foreman who said, of purposeful rest. So mm. if someone came to you and said, Rabbi Browse, I'm standing on one foot. I want to have a purposefully restful Shabbat. What should I do? First, put your other foot down and get rooted and stop trying to look for quick, easy answers. Great answer. This isn't just about cell phone sleeping bag. Like we have to actually have a real conversation. What I think I would suggest is contemplating what it means to create a rhythm that mirrors an ancient rhythm that has kept our people alive for thousands of years that allows us to believe that it is possible for the world to be different from what it is and then motivates us to live in the world as an act of transformation and revolution against what is in the hopes of building something that could be. What does that look like? Well, there are all kinds of practices I would suggest. That looks like candles. That looks like wine. That looks like song. All of these external elements that are designed to help us create the space for that dream to fundamentally live, for the big questions to be asked. In my family, something we've been doing is like bringing long form articles to the table. One of my kids brings an article from the Atlantic or the New Yorker or something that lifts up real questions and issues and challenges. And then we sit and we luxuriate in questions about morality, about society, about politics, about our connection to each other. It looks like that. It looks like reading the books that you never have time to to read. It looks like looking at each other, playing. We don't have time to play in our society. I don't have time to play in my week. Great point. All of these things are part of the kind of sacred magic of Shabbat. Well, that's purposeful rest. Magnificent. What should I actually do? Let's start at sundown on Friday night. Just choreograph the next 24 hours for me. Light the candles. I mean, candle lighting is, I think, one of the most powerful rituals because it's an embodied ritual Hmm. and it's also beautiful and it brings grace into your home. If you take on one ritual to start this practice, create sacred space by lighting candles, okay? Number two, actually try putting devices away, especially as a parent of teenagers. Thank God for our Shabbat practice because we're not only on our devices all the time, we're je- we're usually double devicing. When you're watching a show to- or a movie together, everyone's also on their own phone, right? I mean, this is just the moment that we're living in and the way, the all the ways that the world has access to us and, and that we've forgotten how to be curious, how to imagine how to just sit with ourselves, even how to be bored. We don't know how to be bored, which I think is the beginning of a, sometimes a flourishing or generating of creativity. So put the devices away, light the candles and stop running. Take a breath, sit down for a dinner that takes longer than it could on Tuesday night because you're not going anywhere. Be sure your dinner is longer on Friday night than on the average Tuesday night. For sure. And when our kids were little, our rule was we stay at Shabbos dinner until they fall asleep at the table. That's great. There's no bedtime on Friday night because we want them to understand that the Shabbos table is a sacred space where we laugh and we tell stories and we sometimes cry and we sometimes play it. But this is the the Shabbos table. It is our, it is our beta Migdash. This is our sacred space now. So this practice built in from when the kids are little, it makes it a lot easier when they're teenagers because they understand now this is our time. And and during pandemic, especially, it's been really powerful for us because we're in the house all the time. And this has to be different from the rest of the time when we're in the house. Staying up late, having every person in the family bring something that they want to contribute. We have this practice in our home of first before Shabbos dinner even starts, like we the way that we bless our kids 
is, I mean, we developed this little practice and people have really beautiful traditions for how they do this, but like putting your hands on your kid's head and just whispering to them so only they can hear something that they did that week that you want to lift up. Beautiful. So so, so your blessing for your children is specific. Yeah. We then say the traditional blessing, but I always start by trying to say, I saw how you responded to that thread with your friends and it was really courageous. And I am grateful that you have this of, of, of courage. And I bless you that you should always continue to find a way to have a voice, especially when everyone else is silent. Then we say, you know, and they love it still because they know that they're being seen, that the things that they're doing in the world matter. My kids like to, they'll write little questions down and then they hide them under the plate. And so at some point in the dinner, you lift up the plate and the question is like, what's one smell that you remember from your childhood? Or like, what's your favorite story about Grandma Millie? Or, you know, like just little things that, so we're actually learning about each other by just paying attention. No, I do not have time to do that when it's not Shabbat. We sing, each person brings a song that they love. We talk, sometimes we fight, <laughs> we debate. And this continues through Saturday because you're saying you have your kids yeah. bring an article from the New York or the Atlantic or something to, for, for discussion. Yeah, and that's, Shab- that's been Shabbos lunch all during pandemic because du- usually we go to shul on Shabbos morning when it's not pandemic and then we have lunch at shul. And so we have a very beautiful, full, like communal experience, but it's really just, it's it's just us for dinner, for lunch, week after week for a year. So we just, you know, what we do is we, you know, we talk about an idea. There there was an article that in the, in the Atlantic recently about how prenatal testing is meaning that there are so many fewer people being born with genetic diseases now and how painful that is for the families that have kids with genetic diseases because there's less money for research now and there's this moral dilemma, ethical dilemma, like that's, my kids were really interested in that. Like, is this fair? Is this right? Like, think about what that means. So like really the opportunity to dive deep into an idea and to sit with a book and to play chess and to, you know, and to do a puzzle and just be quiet with each other. That's the dream. Well, Sharon, thank you for such a fascinating conversation about this awesome commandment from Parsha Yitro. Now, the concluding question of the rabbi's husband always goes from one text, the sacred text of the Bible, to another text, which is Andre Malraux's 1968 book, Anti-Memoir. And he tells a story in the book of running into a priest with whom he served in the war. And he said to the priest, in all of your years of hearing confessions, what are two things that you've learned about mankind? And the priest said, one, Everyone is much less happy than he seems. And two, there's no such thing as a grown-up person. So in your now 20 years of being a rabbi and more than 15 years uh, of leading Ikar, what are two things that you've learned about humankind? Wow. I'll tell you one. I realized years ago when I, I went on a trip with Ruth Messenger and AJWS to Liberia, and we met with the women who were responsible for ending the civil war there after many, many years of devastating civil war. And I realized that they were shocked that this group of Jews from New York and Chicago and LA flew all the way over there just to hear their story. And I realized how much they needed to tell their story and how much, and what it meant to them to be seen by us. And in that moment, my realization was that what they fundamentally needed was to be seen. And that's what we all need is to be seen on some level. That is at the heart of almost all of the pastoral counseling I do. That's at the heart of most of the, most of what I do as a rabbi is helping see people, is seeing people, is helping give love to people and helping them know that it matters that they exist in the world and that they cannot disappear from this world because the world will be 
bereft without them, that their stories matter, their pain matters, their experiences fundamentally matter in the world. And that is a universal human need. And it manifests in the smallest and in the biggest ways. So I would say that's the, that is the single most important thing that I've learned in the last 20 years, probably. Wow. Well, Sharon, thank you for such an extraordinary uh, conversation about so many subjects, all stemming from uh, both before and after this awesome passage from uh, Exodus. Thank you, Mark. Well, now we can see why Rabbi Sharon Brous is such a great entrepreneur in the Jewish world and why so many people are experiencing Judaism through her leadership, because what remarkable lessons and learnings and teachings in the most practical way about how to enjoy Shabbat and how to experience God's blessing of Shabbat, which we are so privileged to enjoy once every single week. And now we can do so with the wisdom of Rabbi Sharon Brous. As I always say to my wife, next year in Graceland. I'm Mark Erson, and this has been The Rabbi's Husband, and thank you for listening. Please go to Apple, to Spotify, to wherever you receive podcasts, rate, review, and subscribe. I can be found at therabbishusband.com or at The Rabbi's Husband on Facebook or Instagram, and I would love to hear from you, so please email me at mark at therabbishusband.com. This podcast is part of the Joshua Network. You can find out more about the Joshua Network at thejoshuanetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Mm-hmm.